Well, good morning, Active Church. How are you? Man, it's so good to see you and Mike and Lynn. It's good to see you guys. I'm glad that you're here from Ninos, and we love them, and they're in the front row, so they're better Christians than all of us. And so, hey, my name is Mike, if we haven't met yet, and I serve on the team here at Active Church. Thanks for being here today. And again, I want to remind you, if you are new, stop by Guest Central. We have a free gift for you. It's our way of putting a face with a name possibly answer some questions that you have. And our ask of you is that you would give us the next 90 days because we believe that today you showing up here is the beginning of something beautiful in your life. It's the beginning of your better story. And so stop by Guest Central to get started and then come and see us on March 3rd in between services for First Step. Uh, Pastor Jeremy mentioned um, two things that happened this week that were just heartbreaking and devastating. And I want you to know that at Active, we've prepared ourselves for any and all situations. We have a safety team here at Active that you may not see, but they see you, and they are watching over this place. They're watching over our kids. We have protocols in place in case something tragic happens, and so I want you to know that we've thought about that, and we're continuing to think about that. In fact, our safety team is going to have a training in just a couple of weeks to go over our protocols. It's one of those conversations that I don't ever want to have with you, and you probably don't ever want to have with me, but I want you to know and want to assure you, especially if you're a parent, that we have thought about that and that we have taken those appropriate steps to make sure that this place is a safe place for you because you're precious to us, and we love you. And so I just want you to know that. And I'm grateful for the behind the scenes team that keeps us safe each and every week. Uh, I wanna pray some words over us and then we'll dive into the story of God together. Heavenly Father, as we come into this place today with heavy hearts because of things that have happened in our world, but also heavy hearts maybe because of things that are happening in our personal world. God, would you meet us in that? I speak peace over that. I ask for your comfort in that. God, for some of us, we may, may come into this place carrying a whole lot of terrible decisions that we have made and we feel shame and we feel regret. God, would you meet us with forgiveness in that? And would you set us free because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished through the grave? Thank you for a space and a place to be able to be inspired and challenged and convicted. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray all of this. And together we say amen and amen and amen. Today, we begin a brand new series called Essentials. And over the next few weeks leading up to Easter, we're going to wrestle through this very important question. What must a person believe in order to be a faithful follower of Jesus? What must we believe in order to faithfully follow Jesus? Now, at Active, we talk often about what we do because it's the doing that matters. It's the doing that changes the world. It's the doing that follows Jesus. It's the doing that shows that we've surrendered. It's the doing that lets people know, that lets us know, that ultimately honors God because we are obeying what God has invited us to do. And so we will talk often about what we do because of what we've learned. But over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about what we must believe because belief always leads to something. 
What you are convicted of and convinced of will impact your words and your actions. For example, just a simple example, if you value people, because in the kingdom of God, people have incredible, powerful, godly value, then you will value people in your life. If you believe that that's true, then you will behave like that's true. But if you don't believe that that's true, then you might find yourself mistreating certain people in your life that you can't get things from. That's why belief matters. That's why this conversation matters. Belief always leads to action. So what must a person, what must a person believe in order to faithfully follow Jesus? What can't they do without? What can't they live without? What's essential? And that can be really hard to determine, honestly. And here's why. Because the Christian faith, the Christian tradition, is like a home filled with all sorts of living rooms. And every sort of perspective is a living room in the home. We call them denominations. There are Presbyterians, and there are Lutherans, and there are Catholics. And then there are even subsects of Christianity, like Mormonism and Jehovah Witness. And we all have these conversations each and every weekend about what it is that we believe. And you and I are being invited into those living rooms constantly by all of these different beliefs, by all of these different denominations, by all of these different groups. And it can be hard to determine what's essential and what's not, because each living room is influenced and shaped by an interpretation. It's influenced and shaped by a tradition. In fact, for those of you that are new to Active, what we just participated in, called communion, is something that we do each and every week. But for some of you, maybe it was brand new to you, and so that was the first time that you participated in that. For others, maybe you have a church history like I do, where you wouldn't take communion every week, you would take it maybe once a month, or if you're a good Baptist, once a quarter, right? Like, that's just how the rhythm worked. And, and we have conversations about why we do it each week, and there are other churches that have conversations about why they do it once a quarter. And so we'll, we'll tell you, here's why we do it, they'll tell you why they do it. It, it can be hard to determine What's essential when we walk into traditions and walk into interpretations, walk into living rooms of different denominations and different gatherings? There is one thing that we all have in common, though. And that one thing that we all have in common is that we all think that we're right. And we think everybody else is wrong. That's what we're convinced of, right? Now, here's the truth. There are some things that we are probably wrong about. Not us, of course. We're right about everything, right? But, but for other people. But truthfully, there are some things that we're probably wrong about. We probably don't have a full understanding. We don't have full clarity. But it's the things that are essential that I don't want to be wrong about, that I want to get right. It's the things that are essential that you don't want to be wrong about, that you want to get right. And that's why this conversation is so needed and so necessary. When I talk about essentials, I'm talking about the things that are fundamental, non-negotiable, the things that are core, that are crucial, that are important. And when we find out what's essential, we also discover what's not, what's peripheral, what's cultural, what's comfortable, what's trendy, and even in some cases, what's toxic and what's harmful. Can you see why this conversation is so important? For us, 
but also why this conversation is so important for me and for you. Can you see why we got to get this right? And in some cases, over the generations of the existence of the church, there have been some people who have had these really important conversations as they began to search for what's essential, what's right, what's crucial, what's important. And often what happens is in that investigation, in that search, they end up throwing out everything. You ever heard like, like, let's just start over. Let's just refresh everything. Let's just throw it away. Growing up, I used to think that I was an artist. As I got older, I realized that I'm not, but I would draw as a young kid often. And if I didn't have the most accurate picture of Super Mario that I was drawing or the most accurate picture of Sonic the Hedgehog that I was drawing, I loved video games, by the way. And so if I didn't have the most accurate picture, if, if something was off, I would tear that up and throw it away. And my mom tells the story often of walking into my room and my trash cans were filled with paper. I was not eco-friendly. I was not green. I had just had filled trash cans with paper because I just didn't like how the picture looked. And, and what I believed was I just needed to start over. I couldn't correct my mistake. I couldn't adjust my mistake. I just needed to wipe everything away. And often when we go searching for what's essential because of something that maybe isn't essential or because of something that was harmful or toxic or peripheral or cultural, we have a tendency to just toss everything. Let's just get rid of everything and start over. You ever heard the phrase, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater? It's a really fascinating phrase, Right? I don't think I've ever used that in my entire life until today, to be honest with you. But I discovered that it actually comes from a 16th century warning. A 16th century warning from theologians and scholars. Here's the warning. In your zeal to rid yourself of something unwanted or harmful, don't inadvertently rid yourself of something valuable and important. In other words... Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And when it comes to a faith perspective, don't throw out baby Jesus with the bathwater. Don't throw out the story of Jesus or the person of Jesus or the work of Jesus with the bathwater. Each generation has had an opportunity, and it happens in every generation, and it's happening right now. Each generation has an opportunity to, to deal with teachings that don't look or sound like Jesus. And the reason why they're dealing with it is because as they get to know Jesus and then hear the teachings that have been shared and have been called essential, it can be very confusing to them. It can be very toxic to them, maybe even harmful to them. And we see that in generations past, and we see that in our generation, where the teachings of Jesus are tied to an agenda the teachings of Jesus are tied to politics. The teachings of Jesus are tied to fill in the blank. Now, I've been a Christian for a really long time. I came to know Jesus at eight, was baptized at the age of eight. I was raised in a Christian home. Here's something that Christian people, you'll know, and if you're not a Christian or if you're new to this, you may have experienced. And I'm not bragging about it. It's just a reality. Here's the reality. If you give me a topic, whatever it might be, cultural, political, personal. I could find you a verse 
And for the rest of your life, you could tie whatever it is that you're feeling and that you're thinking, your agenda, to that verse, and it would sound biblical, it would sound good, and it would sound godly. It's not something we should brag about, but that often happens in our world, where we take Scripture and we intertwine it with something that we want to achieve, with something that we want to accomplish, and then we teach it as though it's gospel truth, as though it's biblical truth. We teach it as if this is Jesus. And then when people come along and go, I don't know if that's Jesus. I don't know if that's biblical. What happens to those people is that they begin to get questioned. People begin to wonder if they're Christians. How dare you question that? They used a scripture to tie it into this agenda. How dare you question that? And suddenly you're confused because you're like, well, should I question that? Can I question that? And even in some cases, people who are following Jesus that might question that, things that aren't essential that have risen to the level of essential, they're, they're not just questioned in their faith, but they're, at some points, they're told that you're out. Oh, you're not, a, you're not a believer in God anymore. If you don't agree with this perspective, if you don't agree with the thing that we're holding on to. And the reason why a lot of these non-essentials can become essential is, is that we, we suddenly see that they're not feeding the interest of others. They're, they're feeding the interest of self. They're pushing our agenda. They're pushing our selfishness. They're meeting something that we would hope would be met, whether it be cultural or political or personal in our world. And it's why it makes it really difficult when you start to question that, because if they've tied it to scripture, it makes it sound like you as a follower of Jesus or you as a new follower of Jesus, or maybe you who's intrigued by Jesus, you might go, that just doesn't, this doesn't feel and look like Jesus. You ever had a moment? You don't need to raise your hand, but you ever had a moment where you heard something and you went, man, when I read and follow Jesus through the gospels, that certainly doesn't feel, sound, or is experienced as something that Jesus taught or something that Jesus did. And then if you had the guts to say it out loud to somebody who was in authority over you, you might be a bit nervous and you might be a bit scared in how they're going to respond. But friends, I want you to know that this has been the process and the work that the church has done for generations, for centuries, to bring us back to what's essential, instead of prioritizing what's personal or cultural or political for you or for me. Now, now I'm sharing all of this not to cast judgment. I'm sharing all of this not to shame anyone. And I'm sharing all of this not to dehumanize anyone. I think we've all been in an experience, whether we caused it or it was caused upon us, where we've experienced some sort of level of this doesn't feel like Jesus. This doesn't seem essential. And so let me question it. Or maybe we, at one point in our faith journey, had a moment where we prioritized some things that we know now don't look and sound like Jesus at all. And the reason why we address it and talk about it in settings like this is because it's important for us to acknowledge that when we rise things to the level that we call essential that are not essential, 
what we're doing is we're conflicting with what Paul writes about in the New Testament called the law of Christ. You ever heard of the law of Christ? It's essentially this, to love others the way that Jesus loves you. Enemy love. No revenge kind of love. Immigrant love. Connecting our hearts to our hands kind of love. Love that is counterintuitive to maybe some of the political beliefs or cultural beliefs or personal beliefs that we hold in our hearts. It's why at Active, each and every week, we talk about what love requires of us. And honestly, if you find yourself going, yeah, I know we should love, but be careful what you fill that blank after that but with. Because what you fill that blank with might be you stepping into the role that the powerful Holy Spirit is supposed to play in our lives. That God himself as our Heavenly Father is supposed to play in our lives. That doesn't mean that we don't have hard conversations. That doesn't mean that there isn't going to be consequences to terrible decisions. That doesn't mean that we don't lead people and influence people. Here's when we lead and influence and have those hard conversations. When we have built trust. When we're in relationship. See, most of us want to have the really hard conversation with the person on the other side of the screen, don't we? We don't know them. We don't know their story. We just read what they wrote, and we want to respond. And the truth is that most of our conversations, if not all of our conversations that are hard and that are heavy, should come because there's intimacy and proximity and trust that has been built. Friends, if we ever get tired of doing what love requires of us, we're going to get tired of Jesus. It's why at Active we talk about it all the time. It was Billy Graham that said, it's God's job to judge and the Holy Spirit's job to convict and it's my job to love. And this is why this conversation is so important because if we prioritize things that are not essential and we promote things that are not essential, it actually can create a posture in our hearts that influences our actions. And it can cause people to question the God that we choose to serve. And not even just question that God, but maybe leave gatherings like this because they don't know if they can align themselves with that. Or maybe because they've received really terrible words or really terrible behavior. And for some, and this might be you, for some, you just went, I, I got to walk away completely. Not just church, but I got to walk away from faith completely. You threw the baby and the bathwater and the bathtub out, right? Because you just weren't sure what to do. You weren't sure what to say. You weren't sure which way to go. You wondered if there is any value to this. You wonder if there's any significance or purpose to this. And for some of you, you would say, maybe not out loud because of how you've been treated, but maybe you would say in your own heart, and if somebody poked hard enough, prodded hard enough, maybe you would say, I, I do still believe that there is a God. And maybe you would go as far as to say, and I still follow Jesus. I just can't embrace some of the things that I see and that I hear from people that call themselves Christians and gatherings that call themselves churches. Friends, this is why this conversation is so needed and necessary. 
There, there's a phrase that has been used, a word maybe that has been used often in the last 10 to 20 years in our culture. Maybe you're familiar with it. If you're close in Christian circles, you might be aware of it. And it's a phrase that can be very divisive, a word that can be very divisive because we have applied our own definition to it. The word is deconstruction. Some of you are in that process right now. And it's not new. It's been happening since the beginning. Deconstruction is this, that I'm going to tear down the things that I believe so that I know that they align with who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Because along the way, especially for us church kids, if you aren't a church kid and you just came to know Jesus, good on you because you might have missed some trauma over the years in growing up in church. Because honestly, for some church kids, there are things that we believe that are essential, and then there are some things that we've just decided to adopt along the way. And that's where a lot of people are like, wait a second, I don't want to adopt that anymore. Because that doesn't feel, look, or be experienced as Jesus. And I think a lot of us are there. We're going to deconstruct so that we can reconstruct because we want to know what it is that we should believe. We want to know what it is that we should do. We want to know what it is that we should leave behind. We want to know what it means to follow Jesus. And can I just say to you, if that's you, good on you. If that's you, how mature of you? You may have not been told that before. It might be the first time that mature and your first name is in the same sentence, right? But when it comes to your faith, you're taking a really healthy and holy step. What you've discovered is what a lot of us are continuing to discover, and it's this. A faith that can't be questioned can't be trusted. And a God that can't be questioned should not be followed. God's not afraid of your doubt. We started this year off with a conversation our first Sunday together. Try something different in our pursuit of God. And the thing that we're going to try to be different in is that we're going to choose to be curious, not condemning. We're going to choose to be curious and not afraid. And that's what gatherings like this begin for us. They, they start that for us. It's why connection groups are so important. It's why personal relationships are so important. That there's a space and a place for us to ask questions. And one of the questions is, what do we believe? What should we hang on to? And what should we let go of? So in the, just the last few minutes that we have together, I want to share one thing that you should hang on to and then share why. And the thing that you should hang on to is the most obvious thing. Even if you're not a Christian or maybe new to this, it's the most obvious thing. And it's not actually a thing. It's a person. You need to hang on to baby Jesus. Now, baby Jesus grew up and baby Jesus accomplished a whole lot of really incredible, life-giving, life-changing things. He changed the world. He changed my world. And for a lot of you, he's changed your world. Friends, when you feel like you have to let go of everything else, hang on to Jesus. And that can be difficult. And that can be hard. Because as you navigate those things, you're wondering what it is that you should hang on to that are really important and the things that you should let go, go of, but you're just going to hang on to him and to the person and work of Jesus. And I get that the reason that it makes it really difficult is because often we don't feel comfortable sharing our doubts and sharing our questions and asking things that may not seem appropriate, but are very appropriate because it's allowing us to ask and to seek and to knock. Karen Armstrong wrote a really incredible book called The Case for God. 
And she writes this book in response to some of the things that she was struggling with when she grew up in the church. And she, in fact, stepped away from her faith because of the, the spaces that she was a part of didn't allow her to navigate and ask what it was that she needed to ask, the doubts that she had in her heart. And she wrote this really incredible book, The Case for God, and in it there's this quote that, that struck me. Here's the quote. We learned about God at about the same time we were told about Santa Claus. But while our understanding of Santa Claus and the, the phenomenon of Santa Claus evolved and matured, our theology remained somewhat infantile. Here, here's, here's the idea. There is a season of life where many of us believed in the magic of Santa. We were the recipients of it, right? Then there was a season of life where we moved from just being the recipients of it to now we get to protect the magic of Santa. And if we don't protect it, then we don't get any gifts. That's why mom and dad say you better protect this for your, your brothers and your sisters who are younger than you, right? Then there's a season of life where it's not just about you receiving or you protecting. Then there's a season of life where you're the magic, you're the magic giver, right? You're the one that makes it happen. And that's how our belief in Santa evolves. But when it comes to faith, often what happens is that we might meet Jesus at a very young age and then we never grow up and we never allow the story of Jesus to grow up with us. It's still just Bible stories to us. Not a God who is our Heavenly Father who sent His Son to die and to rise for us. Not a God who chooses us and sets us free through the forgiveness that's found on the cross. See, what happens often is that we can see Jesus like we saw him at eight and then never actually grow up and discover who he is and what he's achieved and what he's doing in our life today and never find ourselves doing what Jesus has invited us to do. Karen Armstrong felt that and that it happened because she couldn't ask the questions that she was thinking and processing. The truth is, is that faith that's not allowed to grow up will be deconstructed intentionally and eventually. It'll be torn down eventually and intentionally. And either you'll do it or life will do it. And if that's you, I got great news for you. If you follow Jesus through the scriptures, through the gospels specifically, you'll find that he interacts with people like you. And he answers questions of people like you. And he invites people like you to hang on to him, to follow him. And if that's you, then you're in good company. Because we are all in that space and in that place of wondering what it is that we should believe so that we can faithfully follow Jesus. Whether you've been following Jesus for a really long time like me, or even longer than I have, or you have just started following Jesus, and you were baptized last week, and it was a part of your process of trusting in Jesus, not just privately, but publicly. Today's conversation, and over the next few weeks, will be so essential for you as well. So let's answer that question. What must a faithful follower of Jesus believe? What must they be convinced and convicted of? Well, to answer that question, we need to ask a different question, a, a deeper question of ourselves and of Jesus. And it's this, what was essential to Jesus? Because anybody that predicts their death and resurrection and then does it 
is somebody we should pay attention to. And the beliefs that Jesus held showed up in how he lived and in what he taught and in what he achieved and what he accomplished. So what were those essential things in the heart and the mind of the Son of God, of the one that has rescued and redeemed us, the one that invites us to follow? What was essential to him? Because if we find out what's essential to him, then it makes this conversation pretty easy, right? We don't have to create it or come up with it. We can just look to the person and the work and the words and the way of Jesus. So here's where we begin. Let's begin by just looking at the life of Jesus. More specifically, listening to the words of Jesus. There was something that Jesus said in three different ways that gives us great clarity as to what, to start this conversation, what is essential to him. The first thing that Jesus said pretty often were these words, for it is written. When Jesus is talking about the thing that's written, he's talking about the words of God, the law of God, in what we call the Old Testament, or we call the Hebrew scriptures. They called it the law and the prophets. Things that were read in the temples, the tabernacles, the gatherings of that day. Jesus used this phrase, for it is written. And do you know the context that he used it in? He used it in the context of a moment where he is being tempted, where he's facing great temptation. This was before Jesus did what we call his life ministry. It was before he turned water into wine and healed people and called people to follow him. For 40 days, he was out in the desert and he was fasting. And in the desert, Matthew tells us that the enemy shows up. The enemy's called the devil. The enemy's called Satan. For some of you, immediately you want to check out when you hear those phrases because you're just not sure about that idea or about that person. And that's okay. Again, here's why we take it very serious, because Jesus did. And so Jesus tells us, and Matthew writes, that there's this moment in the desert where the enemy shows up, Satan shows up, the devil is there, and he tempts Jesus three different times, and the temptation is to not do it the way that his heavenly Father wants him to do it, but to do it in the way that he wants to do it. To actually achieve all of the things that he wants to achieve, but do it in a different way that doesn't honor God and doesn't rescue and redeem you and doesn't rescue and redeem me. That's the, the temptation. And Jesus, each time that he's tempted, he responds initially with these words, for it is written. Each time when he's tempted, he goes, let me tell you, what Almighty God says about this. Let me tell you what my Heavenly Father says about this moment and about this circumstance and about this situation. Jesus uses the law of God to have a conversation with the one who is tempting him. Because for Jesus, he chose to honor what God had communicated and to obey what God had spoken. Now you might ask the question, well, isn't he God? Yes, fully God. And also fully man. Meaning, and Paul writes about this later on in a letter called Philippians, meaning that Jesus chose to not show up with his resume, 
to not show up with his LinkedIn account and say, hey, check that out. Jesus didn't show up to flex on the fact that he is God. Jesus chose to be like you and to be like me so that we could choose to be like him. He faced everything that you and I face. It's why Jesus can empathize and sympathize with you and with me. He can say, I'm so sorry that's happening. And he can say, I know how it feels. Because Jesus took on skin and flesh and bone and blood and lived like you and lived like me so that we may have forgiveness from our sins and freedom from the things that trap us. So yes, he's fully God. And fully God chose to be fully like you and me. And when Jesus was being tempted, he responded with what was essential for him, and that was the words of God. And this is just a side note, but I find fascinating in this story. Jesus chose to fight temptations with the words of God found in the Scripture. Maybe this is why it's really important for us to spend time in God's Word together. Maybe this is why it's important for us not to just read it, but maybe to get it in our hearts and to remind ourselves in our minds so that when there is an opportunity to do something that is anti-Christ, we would find ourselves going, no, I'm a follower of Christ because the one that we follow did the same thing when he was tempted in the desert. Second thing that Jesus shared was this phrase. You have heard it said, but now I tell you this. Now, there can be some misunderstanding with what Jesus is saying here. He often says this in the Sermon on the Mount, which is in Matthew's letter, Matthew chapter 5. What Jesus is doing is he's not discounting the law in the past, nor is he creating new law. What Jesus is doing is clarifying, demystifying, helping people to understand how beautiful and good and true the words of our Heavenly Father actually are. And he's inviting us to see what it is that we have been invited to say yes to. So for example, one of the things that he said is, you have heard it said that you shall not murder. Yeah, nobody wants to be a murderer. At least we hope, right? But then Jesus says, but now I tell you that if you have hate in your heart, it is just like as if you have eliminated or destroyed them because of your posture towards them. He wasn't getting rid of the law. He was just clarifying it for us. He does that pretty often. You, you have heard it said, but now I tell you that you, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is the way to go. So if they do something bad to you, you could do something of equal measure back to them. But Jesus says, but now I tell you that you should turn the other cheek. That you should go the extra mile. That if they want to borrow your jacket, give them your clothes as well. It's not the invitation to just be a doormat in the lives of people. What Jesus is inviting us in that moment to do is without words cause the person that is mistreating us to reconsider the fact that this is who they're choosing to be. 
What Jesus is doing is he's bringing clarity for you and for me so that we may follow him and know what's essential to him. And he did this by honoring the words of God that were spoken in the past. And then the last thing that Jesus said is, are these words. I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Meaning, I did not come to tell you that everything that you knew prior to me being on earth with you is, is now null and void. What I've come to tell you is that what you heard in the past and what you were invited to submit and surrender and obey to in the past, I have come to show you what it looks like in real time, in real life, in real relationship, in real moments. In other words, Jesus came to communicate and demonstrate what God is like. We say that often at Active. So you would know who it is that you're choosing to trust and obey. It's not blind faith, friends. It's faith that's based upon what we've seen and heard and experienced. It's why John says, I wrote all of this so that you may know, and by knowing, you may believe, and by believing, you may have life. John doesn't say, hey, just trust it. Just say yes to it. John goes, read the story. Read my letter. Read Matthew's letter. Learn what Paul wrote. Read about all of what Jesus did, and then make your decision. Know that we were there when all of this happened. Know that we've decided to follow and to trust. Know that what we saw and heard and experienced, we did the best that we could to pass it along to you, so that when you make a decision, it is an educated, reasonable, logical, powerful, using your mind, using your heart, using your soul decision. You're trusting in Almighty God, and He is Almighty God, and you can believe that He's Almighty God because of what... We we saw and heard and experienced. You're not making a decision based upon emotion. You're not making a decision based upon something that doesn't have facts or history to it. You're making a decision based upon fully God chose to be fully like you so you could fully follow him. This is what Jesus is saying in that moment. And Jesus came to communicate and demonstrate, to bring clarity to bad interpretation to the things that people made essential that weren't essential at all. And what I love about this moment is that Jesus affirmed that the law of God was good in the way that he lived, but specifically because of how he loved us well. That's why when he shares this, shows this, interacts with us, it's why Jesus asks us to do one thing. Follow me. Follow me. What's essential to Jesus? To start the words of God, his heavenly father, my heavenly father, and your heavenly father. Jesus said that those things, those words, those phrases are why I do what I do and are why I invite you to do the same thing. Jesus honored the words of God because they were essential to his way and to his work. They told the story before he even showed up on earth. This is why Jesus came, and this is what Jesus invites us into. 
So what about you? What's essential to you? I think for a lot of us, what's essential to us are the morals and the standards that mom and dad taught us growing up, and there's nothing wrong with that. But the truth is, is a lot of our morals and standards have a little bit of Jesus flavor in them, but are not essentially Jesus. Are you with me? Often what happens is that we take a little bit of Jesus and a whole lot of life and we mix them together and we raise them to what is essential. And what Jesus says is let's, let's start by first looking at the words of God and allow those words to dictate and to determine what's essential to us. This is what Paul invites Timothy and the church that Timothy led in the city of Ephesus to do. Maybe you're familiar with this verse. I love this invitation in 1 Timothy 4, 6. He says, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Notice that he puts both of those together. There's a reason for that. We'll talk about it in a second. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Life. Doctrine. Bring life if it's essential to the Jesus that you follow. Which is why we should watch our life and our doctrine closely because there might be some things that are not essential, that do not draw people to the person and work of Jesus and to their heavenly father because we have decided to put a little bit of our personal opinion, political, cultural agendas in, in it. And what Paul is saying to that first church and what he's saying to you and I today is what you believe will reveal itself in what you do. What you believe will show up in how you treat people, love people, serve people, in the words that you say and in the actions that you participate in. Do you see why we have to get this right? Do you see why this is so needed and necessary? We talk often about what you should do but what we do comes from the deep convictions of our Heavenly Father that we've placed in our hearts because we've decided to follow His Son, Jesus. And so today I'm not going to finish with a, and here's what you should do. Today I wanna to end with a bit of tension by asking you some questions to consider. A couple questions, you can just let them wash over you but questions I would love for you to think about today and this week. First question. What is essential to you? And the reason why you need to let that question wash over you is because you need to give yourself some space and some time to hear your words and to watch your actions because that will tell you what's essential to you. Are your words the priority in your heart, or are the words of your heavenly Father the priority? It might take you some time to tease that out again or to tease that out for the first time. Second question, who taught you that? Who, who taught you that that was essential? Because the truth is, is that for many of us, we've sat in gatherings like this and we've heard from people like me who have taught certain things and they've become essential to us. The question we have to wrestle with is, who taught us and is it essential to our Heavenly Father? 
Third question, where did it come from? Did it come from the Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God? Or did it come from an opinion that we formulated over a few years, maybe a few generations in our family? And then the last question that I would invite you to consider will be the most difficult question. As you begin to discover the answers to some of these questions, the last question I want to invite you to ask yourself is this. Would you be up for reconsidering that? Whatever it is that you've landed on. And can I just be honest with you? That question will be more difficult for some of us who've been following Jesus for a really long time because we think that we're right. And we might be. But we also might have some things that are wrong and where I don't want to be wrong is in the essential things. And so what is essential to you? Where did it come from? Who taught you that? And would you be humble enough to go, I'm up for reconsidering that because maybe it's not essential to the one who I follow. That's your homework for this week. That's your to-do this week. And then don't miss next week. Because we're going to begin to find out more specifically what's essential to Jesus by asking the question, what did Jesus believe about himself? What was Jesus convinced about his person and his work? And what we'll discover will be so life-giving, life-changing, inspiring. And when we ask the question, would you be up for reconsidering some of the things, what we discover next week might give you permission to go, oh yeah, I'm gonna let that go and I'm gonna hang on to Jesus. So what's essential to you? Who taught you that? Where'd it come from? And would you be up for reconsidering that if it's not essential to your Heavenly Father? Would you stand to your feet if you're able? I want to pray some words over you, and then we're going to sing one more song together. Heavenly Father, to talk about what we are convinced and convicted of feels a bit weird because often we're told that we should believe certain things. And so we do. But to know that you're a God that doesn't force himself upon us, that doesn't demand himself upon us, but that invites us to consider what it is that you hold to be true, that you said were true, that was essential to you, that we get to decide, we get to decide if that's gonna be true for us. What a, what a privilege. And so may we not allow ourselves to be the one that dictates and determines this, God, but may we bend the knee to you and hear from you and learn from you so that when we say this is essential, we wouldn't say it's because I decided. We would say it's because my heavenly father 
is convinced of this. That my Savior Jesus is convinced of this. So as we consider what's essential and where it came from and who taught us that, and would we reconsider that? God, may we turn to your words in the scriptures to shape our perspective so that we can faithfully follow you today and tomorrow and forever. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray all of this. And together we say amen and amen and amen.